0: This is Listen Again with the Bridge. Your opportunity to hear Sunday's message. We hope you enjoy listening, and it all starts right now. Well, good morning. I am Tim Burke. That's my wife, Kim Berkey, if any of you don't know that. Courtney's dad. I know. <laughs> It's amazing. She took after her mom. But I am, in fact, Courtney's dad. <clears throat> so every now and then they throw me a bone and I get to preach. So if you're visiting today, don't count us out on this sermon. Be sure and come back next week and hear a good sermon, okay? Don't, uh, don't just base it on this one. But have you ever noticed how easy it is to get stuck in a cycle? I need to ask this first. Are we streaming stream the morning... Or the second service this one. this one okay so i always want to know because courtney and chad are watching see the second service then i can say whatever you know <laughs> Uh, it's easy to get locked into these repeating patterns of reactionary actions. We we get stuck in these ruts, you know, constant reacting to and, and at the mercy of what's happening around us. I call that the gravitational pull of the familiar. We just get pulled into this same scenario again and again. You know, we tell everybody and maybe we even convince ourselves once in a while that we want something different. We want excitement. We want adventure. But you know what? The reality is that we seek out that which is comfortable, that which is familiar. We we always are drawn back to the known and this, this gravitational pull of the familiar settling into what we're just comfortable with and used to what has always been makes it hard to change. How many know it's hard to change? It is. Try dieting. <laughs> I've been on a diet for about 45 years now. <laughs> you know? It's hard to make a change. And so what we're talking about this morning, we're going to reference three or four of these different cycles, but we're talking about getting stuck in cycles, repetitive behavioral Patterns, if you put that next, psych, that next slide up there. And the first one that I want to talk about is relational dysfunction it's a it's a it's a pattern it's a cycle that we can get stuck in and this is an example that we that, that we used in our, our small group uh, marriage uh, uh, that we did on marriage uh, and to use this as an example of this and and, and I want to talk about this one first see everybody has strengths and everybody has has talents and abilities things that they are natural or really good at they have a disposition they have a kind of a, a, a go-to demeanor and and these strengths when you when you see those, when you when you kind of flip that that over on the other side of that strength is what I call kind of the the shadow side or the or the negative side of that same trait and that same personality. And so at first you know you're attracted to them. You know maybe they can make decisions quickly and and they can clearly articulate a direction. They know exactly what they want to do. But then after you get to know them and you spend some time with them, you begin to resent the fact that they're in patient that they always want to call the shots you know it's the same thing it's the same trait just kind of on the other side of that you know what you first saw was accommodating and flexible and you loved that later it drove you crazy because they wouldn't get off the couch right and so everybody has this thing going on well, what can happen is we can stuck get stuck in what is the codependent cycle. We can get stuck on that bad side of our strengths and of our, our abilities. See, the goal of a relationship is not independence, it's not dependence, it's certainly not codependence, it's interdependence. It's when both partners in that relationship are working out of their strengths, working out of their best side. That when the partners complement each other, maybe he is nurturing and sensitive and she's the one that's directive and decisive and they both work in that role and when you put the two of them together, it makes a better team. They help each other. They play off each other. And when we do that, when we are in that that outer rim, when we're in that outer circle, then the byproducts in the relationship are respect and validation and trust and growth. But listen, if you find yourself, let me give you an example. So the only way that you can get her to do anything is to nag. And then she resents the fact that you're always nagging her and telling her what to do. And so she gets even more slower moving or whatever. When one partner is always having to do that, that's stuck in that cycle. That's stuck on the negative side of your strengths. Maybe it's you and your kid and you guys are constantly spiking off each other. I guarantee you, you're bringing out, literally bringing out the worst in each other. You know anyone stuck in a cycle of relationship dysfunction like that? You hate it but it becomes oddly familiar and comfortable. But here's the thing, like all these cycles that we're gonna talk about this morning, that can change. You can identify the fact that, listen, we are both not working in our strengths here, we're both working in the negative side of our abilities and take a good look in the mirror, identify the problem, think about what first attracted you to each other, and you can make a change. You know, we're talking about getting stuck, In these cycles, these repetitive behavioral patterns. The second one I want to talk about is self-sabotaging repetitive sin. And it goes back to that same graphic. Self-sabotaging repetitive sin patterns. We get stuck in these. It's like you're your own worst enemy. And every time something seems to be going kind of good, all of a sudden it's almost like you figure out a way to, to mess it up. Maybe it's that you come back to that same sin again and again. And you say, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be different this time. I'm going to do it this time. But I'm drawn back to this same thing that pulls me under every time. And you can get stuck in that same cycle. Because here's another point of this. The shadow side of your strength, that negative side of your strength is where your greatest temptation to sin comes. Think about that a minute. That's really pretty good. We have a pattern that we repeat. We have a go-to signature sin. We've got a place. I guarantee you that, husbands, if you ask your wife, is there anything that I do that I don't realize I do that really isn't very good, man, you'll get a list, right? (laughs) We don't see it. But we go back to the same Destructive, at worst, uh, uh, uncomplimentary patterns. At best, we go back to those same things over and over again, and it comes right out of the same scenario. It comes out of the opposite side of our strength. And when we recognize those vulnerabilities, when we when we recognize those predispositions to sin, we can when we identify those, we can begin to do something about changing. It's like home run hitters; they strike out a lot. This pattern of sin is related to your strengths and your abilities, and other people can see it easier than you can see it yourself. Extroverts, they they inspire and they encourage, but they can be prone to gossip. People who love to learn can be condescending to other people. Those who are spontaneous, they have a great appetite for life, they can struggle with impulse control. Good listeners can become enablers, and optimists can wander toward denial, and and organized people tend to be compulsive and rigid. OCD people, anyone in here? Wave at me. You know what? If we weren't like we are, they couldn't be like they are. All right? Strong leaders can become impatient tyrants. You show me what you're really good at. You show me your gifts and I can show you where you are most vulnerable to sin. Everybody has that cycle. Let's talk about the next one. You know, nothing is as powerful to shape us as our childhood. Nothing is as powerful to shape us as our childhood. Let, let me ask you something. Have you ever found yourself, caught yourself all of a sudden acting just like your dad? Acting just like your mom? And you're like, oh, no. My, I tell you, when people see me now, my dad died when he was 58. So I'm 64. But when I, I look just like that dude. I mean, when people see me now, it's like they're seeing a ghost. I look like him. I act like him, and, and, and you know, it's the same. <laughs> all of a sudden you catch yourself and you're like, man, I swore that I would never do that to my kids, that I would never do that, which maybe you hated it as a kid or maybe worse off, maybe it was actually damaging. But you see yourself, you see those same patterns and you say, oh no, I've become my parents. And and, and the Bible talks about that the sins of the fathers, that they affect seven generations. And I bet you, you can go back and trace that history if you had it available to you. Seven generations are affected. Child abusers are almost always abused themselves and the cycle of generational poverty poverty is so hard for a family to break out of that cycle can go on and on and on nothing is as powerful to shape us as our childhood and we're talking about getting stuck in these patterns stuck in these cycles stuck in these repetitive actions and generational dysfunction The same thing happening from a grandparent to a parent to a child again and again is a powerful cycle that it can happen. The most influential, if not controlling, narrator and scripter of your life is your family. We spend our entire adult life trying to get over our childhood. Have you ever thought about that? Grown man, and he's still walking around dysfunctional from what happened to him as a kid. It's it's almost comical if it wasn't the absolute truth. We can think of, can you think of someone that has a really messed up family? Anybody think of someone who has a really messed up family? How many of you are the person that everybody's thinking of (laughs) right now? (laughs) I mean, we, we know, we see it. You know, there's something interesting that I've noticed when you read through the Bible it is really hard to find good examples of dads. I challenge you, go home this afternoon and see if you can come up biblical examples of good dads. Maybe Joseph, you know, Mary's husband, Joseph. Do you know that in all of recorded scripture, there is not one word recorded that joseph said that dude never talked (laughs) i mean what are you going to say your wife's the virgin mary and your son's the son of god what are you going to add to this mix (laughs) i mean (laughs) and where'd that dude go man we know he's gone at one point I shouldn't even joke like that. That's not in my notes. See, I should have saved that for second service. That's what I'm talking about. That's that deal where I don't say that until we're not streaming that. I'm sorry, you guys. Please, don't, please let me preach again sometime. <laughs> Look at the examples of dads that you have in the Bible. King David. King David. He was so busy running the, the kingdom of Israel that he had no time to take care of his own sons. And they were a train wreck. If you read Second Samuel chapter 13 to the end, you can see that they were terrible. And, and then Solomon. Solomon come up. He saw his father make all these mistakes as a dad. He was no better. He, well, for one thing, the dude had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends. How could he have really been the wisest guy in the world? Come on. <laughs> I have never figured that one out. I mean, I'm not the wisest guy in the world, and I know, man, there ain't no way you can get along with, well, well here we go. Let's just get back on the notes. So, so, so then, you know, Solomon, the wisest guy in the world, he wrote the book of Proverbs, and if you read that, man, that is some great fatherly advice. The problem is he wrote it when he was an old guy, and, and his sons had already just blowed up, and, and it was too little, too late. You look at the prophet Eli. He was a failed father. This is written about Eli, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them, 1 Samuel 3, 13. And so then Samuel, as a young prophet, he watched every mistake that Eli made, and then he made the exact same mistakes. When Israel asked for a king, Samuel said, well, what about my sons? And they said, no way. Your sons are horrible. They, they take bribes. In, in chapter 8, verse 3, they didn't walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes, perverted justice. So here we see that, that Samuel grew up watching Eli be a horrible father, make all these mistakes. He turned right around, and he did the very exact same thing. The cycle of failure continued. Sometimes you know it just feels like we we're powerless against it, that we're stuck in this this gravitational pull of the familiar. Can we write a different story? You know this fourth cycle I want to look at enabling past history to dictate our present and our future, enabling our past history. To control what we're doing and how we're acting and what's going on in our life now. There's a woman in the Bible who is always referred to as Rahab the harlot. Now nearly every time, if not every time you see her name mentioned Rahab, it's tagged with the harlot. How would you like that? What a moniker to have following you around. Her name means, her, the first part of her name, Ra, means, is, is the name of the Egyptian sun god. Her name literally means insolence and fierceness. She was a pagan, heathen, idolatrous, uh, idolatrous prostitute, Rahab the harlot. There's another woman in the Bible named Ruth the Moabitess, and it's the same kind of a deal. Almost every time her name comes up, Ruth the Moabitess, that's tagged on there. Now listen, the Moab was, was where Israel adopted the practice of infant child sacrifice. And during these most, most perverted pagan uh, 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 of rituals, they would take the little child and impale him and use him as a torch to light. It was the most horrendous thing that you could ever imagine. And that was the background. That was the history. That was the legacy that followed Ruth when they tagged her with Ruth the Moabitess. Another woman in the Bible, Bathsheba. She was taken by force by a, a self-righteous king, and, 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 and he, he, he forced himself upon her, and then, then he murdered her husband because she came, became pregnant from that. And then, then he made her move in with him, and then the baby dies. She, she felt like she was forsaken and betrayed by God and man. But you know what these three women all have in common is that they went on to rewrite their story. Here are the worst examples of life that you could have. And they, they write a whole new story. These three women are actually grandmas of Jesus. They are in the bloodline. They are uh, 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 ancestors of Jesus. If you read in Matthew, when he gives the genealogy of Jesus, uh, th- their names are listed in there. What a legacy. What a comeback to actually be able to say that the very Son of God, the Savior of the world, came from my bloodline. That's a story rewritten. That is a history that changed. That is a pattern that was broken, a legacy. Let me tell you another story. This is, I'm actually ready to start the sermon. <laughs> this is it. We're preaching on Josiah. That was the introduction. <laughs> some of you are like, oh, man, this ain't going to be good, Right? Josiah, King Josiah, Second Kings chapter 23, verse 25, it says, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength and in accordance with all the law of Moses. Josiah was the best, if not one of the best kings to ever rule Israel. So he must have had a great example to follow, Right? Wouldn't you assume that if he was, the, if not the best, one of the best kings to ever rule, that he had come from a great leader and king? No. In fact, of his grandfather, it's written that Manasseh king of Judah had committed these detestable sins. He did more evil than the Amorites that preceded him. It also says that Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that it filled Israel with innocent blood, murdered so many people. Manasseh goes down in history as the worst king ever until his son, Josiah's dad, Amnon, it says he was 22 years old when he became king. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He worshiped and offered sacrifice to idols, but he didn't even humble himself before God. So Josiah had the worst dad ever. He had the worst grandpa ever ever. Yet we read this about him. Then neither before nor after Josiah was a king who turned to the Lord. So, So he broke the cycle. He changed his legacy. He didn't become his parents. He didn't become his grandparents. I think maybe somebody here today needs to know that you can be better than your mom. You can be better than your dad. You are not destined to repeat the same cycle that has followed your family for generations. Can I get an amen? amen. Breaking the cycle. He beat the odds. He, he wrote a new legacy, a different story after probably more, but at least two generations of paternal, absolute, horrible failure. How'd he do it? We're going to come back to that. After this brief interlude, (laughs) because before you can break the cycle, before you can make a change, you have got to become (laughs) self-aware, self-aware. You know that guy that has no idea who he really is? Have you ever seen the guy that everybody talks about? Man, that is the most self-unaware guy that I have ever seen. He talks about himself like it's a whole nother person and everybody else around him is like what what and and here it's called being self unaware. See we, we have a tendency to that we we have got to recognize the problem before we can fix it. We get focused on the symptoms. We get focused on the results, the things that come out of the problem, and we really don't hone in and identify what the real underlying issue is. See, the fact is that the distance between the best version of you and the worst version of you is really pretty short, pretty short, and Jesus warned about people like this. He talked about the guy that's got the big old two before in his eye and he walks around and he throws some tweezers wanting to pull a little speck out of his brother's eye. You've read that in Matthew 7, 3. See, my signature sin is my own personal two four stuck right here in my eye as Jesus described it. I'm unaware of it so many times. We struggle to see this. In fact, there's a me that I really can't see. And again, this is what your wife is for to help you see that, right? We all fall into these these patterns. There's the self-serving bias. We claim too much credit and we take too little blame. Listen, here's what research shows. I love this survey. And this one is a shout out to my daughter, Courtney. Most people who were in the hospital from car crashes that they caused when surveyed, the majority said that they are above-average drivers. <laughs> They're in the hospital for a car crash they got hurt in, and they caused it, but they still rated themselves as an above-average driver. Here's another great one. When, even when people ex- are explained in detail the notion of self-serving bias, they rate themselves as above-average on not having a problem with self-serving bias. <laughs> We all do it, man. We give ourselves way too much credit. Another one's attribution error. You know, when I see bad behavior in you, I attribute it to your flawed character. When I do the same thing, it's not my flawed character. I am a victim here. Someone made me do this, right? When I yell, when you yell, you got an anger problem. When I yell, I'm a victim of the circumstances, right? Then there's the confirmation bias. This is where we go ahead and make up our mind what we want to do, and then we just go around finding people who will agree with us. We ignore any facts to the contrary. We've made up our mind. We only look for information that will validate what we have already decided to do. Again, fellas, just turn to your wife and say, That's not me, is it? Do I really have something that I'm not aware of that I do all the time that really isn't very good that needs to change? Try that this afternoon. (laughs) Pastor Chad will be back next week for couples counseling. (laughs) So, how did Josiah do it? How did he break the cycle? When we can really identify that we have an actual problem, when we hone in on that, how do we break the cycle? Well, I wanna look at how he did it in his life. Number one, he surrounded himself with people who could help him. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Can you imagine an eight-year-old running the country? I mean, every day would be a holiday, state dinners of ice cream and cake, it'd be a lot like if I was doing it. Uh, 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 No school, no chores, no bedtime, the entire kingdom he was not even ready to make decisions that a king would have to make but fortunately for the kingdom Josiah had some very good men in his life that helped him make good decisions you should never underestimate the importance of surrounding yourself with good friends good people who you can trust and let me just throw this in here trust has to be earned you don't just give trust You don't just give trust. You you surround yourself with people who have, over time, earned your trust. And he had these two men who were instrumental in shaping and guiding and and helping him make good decisions. One of them was Shaphan, who was a Levite. He was the governor of the city. He was a very powerful, a very influential, a, a substantial man in and of his own right, a great leader. The other one was Hilkiah, who served as the high priest at that time, and they were respected men and leaders, and they made it their mission to help this young king become a great king to realize his potential and purpose in life. I've mentioned this before, but my mom divorced my dad when I was four years old, ran off with and married a guy that she had known for six weeks. He turned out to be a horrible, abusive drunk, put us through 10 years of hell. And because of that, I did not have strong father pictures in my childhood. In fact, I really didn't get to know my dad until I turned 18, and I spent time with him then as an adult. I got some great memories with my dad, and, and, and I, I think he would have been a pretty good dad if he would have had a chance. As it was, he did what he could do in these awkward circumstances, but I just don't have that, that picture of, of father as growing up. You know, as I said, he died when, when he was 58, so I missed that. I missed out on the father-son experiences. And listen, if you've got that, if you've got a great dad, don't take that for granted. Man, don't do that. And, and, and you know what? Look around you and find someone who doesn't have a strong father in their life, who doesn't have a great mother in their life, and make a difference in their life. So I really have few great childhood memories of father, but listen, listen. I, I, want, I want to tell you that there were people in my life, people in my life that helped me. You know, all dads fail. They make mistakes. Some are better than others. You know, I think some, maybe there's some bad dads, some good dads. The reality is I think most dads are somewhere in between. We all do great things and we all do not so great things. But, but I made up my mind that I was going to be a better dad than the dad that I had. And, and I made up my mind that I was going to break the cycle of divorce in my family, break the cycle of poverty that had followed my, my, my legacy, my history forever. Break that cycle that I was going to be there as a father, be there for their mother, be there for my kids. And as I said, all parents have regrets, but, but I, 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 did, I was a better father. I certainly did my best, but I didn't have the counsel of a father growing up and I suffered for it. Looking back, I can recognize many mistakes that I made that I I didn't have the counsel of of a father in my life. But Josiah had these mentors, two of them, and I had people in my life as a kid who invested in me. People as, as a kid in my life, men in my life that helped me. I'm in this pulpit today and maybe even alive today because of my childhood, Pastor Aaron Pack. He took me under his wing. As a poor inner city kid, listen, I'm telling you, there was nothing looking at me that would make you think that that kid was going to amount to anything at all. No future. And he reached out and he invested in me. I can still remember the times that he, I'd I'd open up the door and there he would stand, big old grin on his face. He was bald, had that big grin on his head, big ears sticking out. And he'd have a, a, a bag of groceries in each arm, just standing there grinning like a possum. You ever seen a possum? Well, okay. <laughs> and and, and he, would, he would invite me over to his house and spend time with me. After church every Sunday, they would take me to First Cafeteria in Kansas City. The buffet went from here out to the parking lot. Endless food. He would let me get two desserts. I didn't have to decide whether I wanted lemon meringue pie or chocolate cake. They would let me have both. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. And this man, he, he poured into me I was saved in his church at 10, filled with the Holy Spirit. I, he would let me preach. I preached my first sermon in his pulpit at 10 years old. It lasted 10 minutes. And, and, and I got up there and forgot everything I was going to say. I read a list of scriptures. I sat down, and Pastor Aaron says, well, at least it was biblical. I, I, I mean, I, it was a horrible, but he let me do that. He invested in me, and he made a difference in my life. And there were other men in the church who helped me go in the right direction, stay in the right direction. These mentors helped me break the cycle. And and you need to surround yourself with people who can help you break the cycle. And and to you, I want to say, make a difference in a young person's life. Make a difference in somebody's life. I guarantee you, if you look around you. If you will open your eyes to this, you will see somebody that you can invest in. And Josiah had a godly mentor, and that's how he broke that cycle. If it hadn't been for those two men, he never would have been this great king. Josiah, number two, overcame his past. What a past to overcome. A grandfather who was the worst king ever until his son come along, who was the worst king ever and was assassinated when Josiah was eight years old. He didn't have an example to follow. And So often our past overshadows us and we become victims to it. We're unable to shake free from it we we let it define us and it feels like that We are powerless to break out of this thing and some of you here today You are struggling maybe even hurting from past things that were done to you or maybe should have been done to you That weren't done for you and and, and you struggle with that and I want to tell you something this morning The hurts the past and the present are barriers that need to be broken through before you can have substantial change Those wounds have to be exposed and dealt with and admitted and forgiven man forgiveness is so hard so hard but you will enable the past to control you you will relive those painful memories again and again until you face them confess them renounce them and forgive them do you realize That you allow that person or that situation to continue to control you as long as you do not forgive. It will still impact your life. You're not your dad. You're not your mom. Your course is not set. And listen, I want to tell you this. What I'm about to say is the most important thing I'm saying this morning. Some of you need to wake up right here. This is worth the price of admission. I'm about to give you some. This is the most important thing that I'm going to say this morning. You have to change the way you look at the past. You have to change the way that you look at the past. You have to change the lens you use to view the past. Let God give you a new perspective on your past. Reframe your past, your story, and frame it in faith. Ask God to show you how his hand has been at work throughout your entire past. See your past differently. Let God show you the grace events, the defining moments of grace, the times that God intervened in your life where your life trajectory went a different way because of God. And if you will ask God to show those to you, you will begin to see your past differently. Listen, when people say, well, everything happens for a reason, uh-uh. I'll tell you what the reason is a lot of times. Mean people. Mean people. Life is hard. The world is sinful and broken. And things happen to you that was not God's plan for you. Because people fuss, frustrate the plan of God. People have a free will. And it is horrible what people do. It's horrible what's what some parents do to their children. You can't look at somebody who's just suffered an incredible, horrible, dysfunctional wreck of a something and say, Well, you know, that happened for a reason. You Don't, don't be like that. And that's not true. God never promised that all things that happen to you would be good. Again, that's a misquote of that scripture. God promised that in all things he would work good if you will let him. What God promises is that he can take the worst thing that men can do, he can take the most broken of circumstances, and if you will begin to look for God's hand in there, and if you will begin to surrender that to God, that he can bring good out of the worst thing that has happened in your life. Grace moments, grace gifts, God moments. I have been the recipient of God's amazing grace and mercy in my life. Several life-directing grace moments. Pastor Aaron, no doubt, was a grace gift put in my life. And I look at that and I say, man, God changed the trajectory of my life. The day that my abusive, drunken, evil stepdad disappeared, that was a grace moment. That was a grace moment that changed the the direction of my life. But you know what, the greatest grace gift that most profoundly altered my life, that sent my life in the right direction, that made me better, the most profound grace gift in my life was my wife, Kim. Yeah, I look back and I see it. See, I grew up poor, living in the slums of Kansas City. Kim grew up in a fairly affluent uh, suburb of Jefferson City. Uh, uh, My high school was bad it was racial violence no resources out of 243 students in my graduating class about 40 of us could even read But what was great about that was that allowed me to graduate number eight in my class and the top 10 (laughs) The top 10 got a scholarship to MU And so I went to Columbia to MU on a scholarship With a 3.8 grade point average (laughs) That's number eight. So I moved to Jamestown, where the Berkeys homesteaded in the 1800s. They still have the original homesteads there. I was living with my dad. I was ready to head to college in Columbia. I left the slums of Kansas City on my 18th birthday. That was a Wednesday. My cousin stopped by. I said, hey, you know any girls down here that I could meet? He says, well, I know one. He showed me a picture of Kim. I said, man, that'll do. <laughs> that was Wednesday. The following Sunday night, Easter Sunday night, April 18th, 1976. I drove to the Assembly of God Church in Jefferson City. I walked in and I swept her off her feet. (laughs) But here's here's the God part. I didn't know anything about Kim except she was drop dead gorgeous. Here's the God part, part. Kim's grandpa, Reverend Harry Lewis Pastored the Jamestown Church for years. Kim's dad grew up with my dad. Here we are worlds apart. And our families are connected. Her, her, her folks knew all of the Berkeys. They, they didn't know who I was, but they knew that name very well. Her pastor, here I was in Kansas City. Kim was in Jefferson City. Her pastor in Jefferson City was my camp counselor twice down at the camp. He knew me. He vouched for me. (laughs) And so the rest is history. I took Kim and I took her best friend as a chaperone because her dad's like, ain't no way you're leaving with that guy. I don't blame him. We went to McDonald's. See, Josiah surrounded himself with people who could help him. Josiah overcame his past. That's what Kim helped me to do. That's a grace moment. And I promise you, if you will look and reframe your past, if you will ask God to show you, you will see the times that God intervened in your life. And it'll change the way that you view the past and it will change its power to control you. Number 3, Josiah restored the covenant. He renewed his promise to God. He took a stand for God. He he it says in in chapter 23 verse 3 that the king stood at the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord, following all the Lord had commanded. He wrote a and listen to me, a new legacy, a new story, rescripting the past, forgiving, for and forging a new Future has to begin with a heartfelt, sincere, unreserved commitment to God. Nothing will change until you do something different. Come on. If that primary relationship is not right, none of your relationships will be right. Number four, Josiah eliminated sinful influence from his life and from the life of the nation. It takes more than just being remorseful. I I, I used to see it all the time as a pastor. People come to the altar. They're crying. They're remorseful. But remorse is not the only thing needed. You have to repent. You have to make a change. You have to get rid of the negative influences in your life. Josiah cut all of that out. He cleared all of that out. Stand with me as the musicians come. Verse 2 says he did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. The last thing is he found his passion again. He found his passion again. See, history considered David to be the greatest king of Israel. And David had a, a, a very unique designation in Scripture. David was the only one that was referred to as a man after God's own heart. David was not a perfect man. In fact, he did some of the most horrible sins that you could ever do. But you know why David was a man after God's own heart? Because David was a good repenter. David was a good worshiper. He couldn't stand to be out of relationship with God. And Josiah, it says, patterned himself after David. And and listen, men, fathers, mothers, we've got to do that. We've got to find our passion. We've got to become good repenters. We have to be quick to say I'm sorry to our our spouse, to say I'm sorry to God, and to repent and to worship. We've got to be sensitive to that if we want to write a new story. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we're going to close in prayer in just a moment. Some of you need a change today. We're going to pray. You need to change today. Some of you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I close in prayer, I want you to take this moment right here to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sins. Make a commitment that you are going to serve God. Make that start. Maybe you're a Christian, but God spoke specifically to you this morning about that thing in your life, that repetitive sin, and you continue to excuse it. You continue, continue to condone it. Today's the day you need to say, okay, I've, I'm done with that. I'm going to put accountability in my life, and I'm going to make a change, make a commitment to do that today. Maybe it's your passion, your worship. You come to church, and we have this wonderful worship team that's trying to, to lead us in worship and usher us into the presence of God. And you stand there like a bump on a log, unmoved, unaffected by worship. Today, you need to make a commitment. God, I'm going to become a worshiper. I'm going to set that set example before my children, before my, my spouse. I'm going to become a worshiper this morning. You need a passion. You need a purpose. Maybe God has challenged you to be a better parent. You find yourself that you fell right back into the same cycle. Stop it. I'm going to make a difference, and I'm going to make a change in my life. Nothing will be different until you change something. And this morning, as I close in prayer, I want you to make that change. I want you to make that change. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as broken, dysfunctional people. We come before you as hurting people. We come before you recognizing that without the grace and the mercy of God, that none of us would be anything but broken and ended. And so now we cry out for your mercy and we cry out for your grace. And I pray this morning that you will speak to the hearts that are gathered here today. Speak to the ones that are here today and show them where they need that change. And Father, this morning, as we close in prayer, as we take communion, God, we make this commitment that we are going to surrender to you. This morning, we're going to receive communion as we always do. If you're new today, the, the emblems are in the corners. There's two cups. The bread and the wine are there together. Pull them apart. So if you would like to go ahead and receive communion, you can go ahead and get that communion. You can receive it at your seat as a family or individually.